she certainly can't run a pot empire selling to elementary school kids out of <laughs> Iowa City. <laughs> but she could try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And we're coming at you again this week with another play. This one is a really new play. We're really excited to talk about it. It is The Roommate by Jen Silverman. It's just a couple years old, written in 2015 for the Humana Festival of New American Plays, which is a part of the Actors Theater of Louisville uh, Festival. And... Yeah, it was produced down there, and it is now in production. I believe it by the time you're listening, it'll be in production at Steppenwolf, which is June 21st through August 6th. It's running there for a good long time. It's a small cast and a great show. I'm really excited to get to start talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you guys know, you listeners know, a lot of the plays that we review come to us by way of being famous scripts, being scripts that are taught in school, oftentimes Pulitzer Prize winning scripts. This script came to us because it's a relatively new script being done at Steppenwolf, as Jackson said, which was exciting to us. We both know and love Steppenwolf, and probably neither of us will get to see the production there, so we're not going to be able to review the actual production. So we thought, why not have a conversation about the script itself? And, you know, we didn't know much about the script going in or really about the playwright at all, but we think that we really discovered a treasure. Um, I guess we didn't discover it. Steppenwolf and their whole artistic team found yeah. it first, at least. But um, <laughs> we, for for our for our podcast purposes, we've really stumbled into um, something that is going to be really cool to talk about. I think so. The play is uh, just two characters. It's a two hander, and it is set in Iowa City. Um, th- that comes up several times throughout the play that both of them now live in Iowa, these two characters, and neither of them are from ca- uh, Iowa. The two characters are Cheryl, or Sharon, I'm sorry, and Robin. Sharon is a recently divorced person um, in her middle age, and she is sort of searching for what is going to be next in her life. She lives in this large Iowa farmhouse. She talks about, you know, the things that Iowa has going for it are corn and space. So there's plenty of room in this Iowa farmhouse. And so she decides that she needs a roommate. And so she brings in a roommate. She posts, I think, um, and manages to find a roommate in Robin. Robin has recently moved to Iowa City from the Bronx. And... She has kind of a, a a history that is shrouded in mystery, um, and that is part of what the play, what the plot of the play is, is Sharon finding more and more about what goes on in Robin, what has gone on in Robin's life. The other part of the plot is Robin kind of breaking down some of the long-standing beliefs that are in Sharon's life about different moral codes, about what life should be like, about um, relationships, and show kind of Robin showing Sharon that those moral codes are maybe empty um, or, or at least are worth examining. Plot-wise, it's not – there's just not a ton that actually, you know, happens in terms of 
significant actions. Um, it's a lot about the relationship between these two women. Um, we'll, I, we'll go through, I think, kind of the major plot points as they hit, but the kind of the core tension is each of these women working on each other's lives. One of the things that I'd like to start talking about, and I wonder what you think, Jackson, is how the characters sort of, um, they seem to kind of desire what the other person has. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great ground to start on. Uh, these two people kind of come in with wildly different life experiences and they both, uh, are looking for a way to kind of jolt them out of those life experiences. So Robin comes in as we find out, uh, she, she comes from the Bronx. She comes from, uh, some kind of questionable background, a very exciting background, certainly to Sharon, but, uh, she, she, uh, approaches this situation trying to get away from that. She's She is retreating to Iowa as a result of... Hmm, I'm trying to figure out how much we want to unwrap right here. Let's just unwrap it all so we can get the full context. Well, let's uh, maybe lay out how it gets unwrapped in the play. Yeah. So in the first couple of scenes, Sharon is um, interrogating Robin, not forcefully, but just as they sort of learn to live together. This yeah. is a play that starts with these two characters at a very low context relationship. They really don't know each other. In fact, the first scene is Robin moving in and we know that they've had one phone conversation or uh, I, I guess I can't quite remember if they said one phone conversation or we, we just at least know that they've talked on the phone. Uh, could be a couple of times, but not enough to get to know each other, uh, just enough to work out the logistics of the fact that Robin is moving in. So the first scene is Robin is moving in. These two women don't know each other. So Sharon starts to ask questions. One of the things that's interesting is that Robin doesn't really asked them any questions of Sharon. Um, right. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a one-way attack. Um, yeah. And that goes on for a few scenes. And what we learn is almost nothing about Robin <laughs> in the first several scenes because she is a closed book. She yes. does not answer questions about her life. She, uh, you know, Sharon will ask several times this actually happens. Sharon asks a question and Robin just totally ignores it. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Totally changes the subject. It would be, you know, or, yeah. if, if if we thought that uh, the player had written those scenes as if it was supposed to be subtle, like Robin was like trying to subtly shift the conversation, it would be laughable because it's not subtle at all. So <laughs> she, like, I think walks because out of the, the play room is so and... comedic, we <laughs> yeah. assume that she meant it to be so blatant. And it, you know, it maybe is a little funny, but she just quick switches the conversation. So we don't really learn that much about her. Un and uh, uh, we know that Sharon asks a couple of questions that she does not get, she pointedly does not get answers to. Does Robin have children? What did Robin do for a job? And, um, you know, other similar questions about why she moved to Iowa. So then sort of the, I don't know, I mean, the inciting incident of the play is probably is Robin moving in. The inciting incident of the relationship maybe is that Sharon accidentally picks up a phone um, and who's on the other line is Robin's daughter Amanda and Amanda says is my mother Victoria there yeah and Sharon goes what no she's not here exactly no, no right. one by that name is here right and then she learns oh you must she she realizes she must be talking about Robin so right away okay Robin has given someone a fake name maybe yep. me maybe her daughter probably me um, so what she does then is in the next scene, she, 
She goes through Robin's stuff. Yep. So the excuse that she gives Robin when she gets found out is that she was looking for a peeler. It's just <laughs> like just an such apple a weak peeler. excuse. Yeah, I was looking for something. Sorry. But what she finds is a box full of driver's licenses, uh, all belonging to Robin, all in different names. Her picture, different names on all of them, like something out of a spy movie. Like I watched a spy TV show recently where the wife discovers that this husband has a box full of fake passports. It's like that kind of a scene. Yeah, and so and, and in that scene then, we begin to uh, see that she has – had this kind of a life of 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 somewhat organized crime. She uh, she uh, made licenses for kids with her daughter to, and uh, to, like college kids who were underage. She was doing fake licenses for them. She sold uh, marijuana and she had she she talks about even like some. Uh, stealing of cars and, and uh, hot wiring of them and the, the different kind of relationships you'd have with buyers and stuff like that. So she is coming to Iowa to get away from that life because her daughter has finally reached the age and uh, has a job in law now, but she's reached the age where she's like, this is, this is bad. We should not be doing this <laughs> anymore. And she won't talk. Uh, uh, Robin's daughter will not talk to her anymore if she continues in that life pattern. Yeah, it's a fairly poignant scene when Robin reveals that about her daughter. Sharon has confronted her about the driver's licenses and has asked and asked, tell me what you did, tell me what you did, tell me what you did. Robin leaves. She says, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. Look, if you really want to know, I'll tell you, but that makes you an accomplice to the crimes. I don't know if that's actually true <laughs> yeah. legally, and I, I sort of get the feeling that Robin knows that might not be true and is just kind of trying to scare Sharon, who's sort of a sheltered person sure. um, and may not actually know that. But but regardless, Robin goes to smoke a cigarette. She comes back in and says, do you really want to know? Sharon says, I really want to know. So she tells her all of what Jackson said. Sort of the main two crimes that will come up again and again to play is um, uh, fraud. She calls people and gets those people to give her money, either by pretending to be a charity or pretending to be a life insurance salesman or, or whatever. However she does it, she gets money from people on the phone and that, uh, you know, perpetuating fraud. The other one is selling marijuana, like Jackson said. So then she reveals, well, I also taught my daughter how to do it when she was young. And then there's this sort of tender scene, this poignant part of the scene where Robin says, um, you know, we, we all teach our kids what we can. Uh, you know, every parent tries to teach their kids what they do. I was just trying to teach my kid what I do. And it's the duty of every kid to grow up and decide not to do that. Right. <laughs> and throw <laughs> off what their parents have taught them. And that's what Amanda did to me. She went on to become a lawyer and she pretends that her mother lives out of country, which is why her boyfriends and fiancés can never come to see me. And uh, so she has cut her out of her life. Enough that the other... The, uh, the sort of pre-scene to this scene is Robin has tried to call Amanda a couple times and there is a great sort of uh, uh, the second call to Amanda is a great one. Her roommate picks up and uh, Robin has said, the roommate said, oh, Amanda's not here. And I said, I know she's here. She's standing right behind you. She's probably staring at you wide-eyed telling you to put down the phone, pretend that she's not there, <laughs> whatever. Well, guess what? I'm living in Iowa. I'm trying to get away from it all. Okay, blah, 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 blah. So we know that Amanda has cut Robin out entirely, which yeah. is part of, like Jackson said, her decision to move to Iowa and try to restart is maybe possibly one of those reasons is to try to rekindle this relationship with her daughter eventually. Yeah. So she arrives in 
in Iowa to to leave that all behind. And she meets Sharon, who is kind of looking to pick more things up at this time. She is, she describes herself as retired from her marriage, um, which uh, is is an, another great scene. That we we find out a lot more about Sharon right away than we than we do. Robin, but it's it's <laughs> it's no less fun in the learning because Sharon is just this kind of uh, talkative, uh, bubbly personality, and she just like comes up with new phrases with how to deal with things, and it's 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 good fun. But apparently, she describes the way the um, relationship went that he technically retired before she did from the relationship, and uh, so she is she is on her own now. She 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 is uh, living on her own. Her son, who we learn is a designer. In New York, um, is uh, kind of a, a force that she doesn't see that often. An individual that she doesn't see that often, and uh, she is regularly throughout the play, kind of calling him and trying to say we should visit again. And so she is very much looking for more things to occupy her life than she has right now. And so enter enter Robin with this exciting past and all sorts of things that, you know, mysteries to figure out. And she, she figures them out. I think there's a line that she kind of talks about her persistence and says that I, I, I'm spacing on the actual words themselves, but it's like, I will get the information that I want. And I am very persistent. My son hates my persistency. You will not be able to defend against it. And, so. and what's especially funny, she links being persistent to being a mother. She says, everybody yes. with our job is very persistent. And Robin says, what job is that? <laughs> being a mother. Yes. <laughs> so there's some, some humor there. Um, yeah, so what Robin is coming to Iowa for sort of is the chance to be Sharon, to be somebody with a house and kids that uh, she can call, that she annoys, that sort of roll their eyes but love them anyway, that the sort of calm peace of a book club and having a garden and living somewhere where the cops aren't after you. Yeah. Conversely, Sharon is looking for something different than that life. She has, she reveals to us that she's sort of been raised into thinking this is the only life for her. Grow up, be an Iowa girl, get married, um, you, you know, have kids, parent those kids. Um, you know, when, when Robin asks her at the beginning of the play, when she moves in, well, what do you do? Sharon's answer is like, I live here. That's what she does. Yeah. And for Sharon, that's now that, her marriage is over. Her life has sort of forced her to take a new step. She's realizing that maybe that that answer, well, what do I do? I live here, is not enough of an answer. And so she is looking for something different and something uh, more grand. At the beginning of the play, I would say she is not she does not think she is looking for Robin's lifestyle, the life of crime, the <laughs> life of uh, socially taboo decisions and all this kinds of stuff. But by the end of the play, she sure sure as heck loves it, you know? Yeah. So it, there's this sense of the characters are, are, are get frustrated with each other for not liking what they have. Sharon gets frustrated with Robin that Robin keeps saying, I want to get out of this. I want to get out of this. And Sharon keeps saying, can you teach me about it? Can you show me how to live this life that you live? And Robin keeps saying, I don't want to. I, I want to get away from it. And that frustrates Sharon. Robin, conversely, 
gets frustrated that Sharon doesn't understand the joy of having a son that doesn't want to talk to her because she's annoying, not because she's a criminal. And <laughs> having uh, a house in Iowa where people don't break in and ha- not having to worry about the police. And so the, some of the p- tension of the play comes from this sort of, uh, you know, grass is always greener sense of the two women. Yeah, and they both have really opposite kind of meanings of life. Then you get that right away in the first scene. Uh, Robin's coming in and and we, we find out through the course of the scene, basically Sharon just keeps putting her foot in her mouth <laughs> time and time again. Um, and, and it takes three scenes, for instance. Uh, uh, Robin's, Robin tells her in the first scene that she's a vegan. And for the next three or four scenes, which are all kind of centered around breakfast or mealtime, Sharon has to, to, has to ask, like, do you want eggs? And no, no, I'm a vegan. And so, so right away she gets hit with this kind of new world right off the bat. But I, I, I think I agree. The, 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 the balance between these two characters who are so different, both wanting what the other one has while having quite a few things that are in common. They both have, you know, children who don't talk to them, for instance, at least not as much as they desire uh, them to. Sharon's son is a big character, uh, kind of the only other character that we interact with regularly in the play via a couple phone calls. And he's kind of standoffish. Like you, you get the impression that she is maybe motivated to do these kind of edgier things to gain back some of, some of that relationship. There's, and then there's another great scene between the two of them they're sitting and they're talking about their kids and they're saying it is it is uh, interesting how they both want to live in the present like they want to they want to yeah. to phrase everything in the present tense like i am feeling this we are doing this yeah. but robin uh, describes her daughter amanda uh, you know as a amanda is a child of crime um, and so she had to go yeah. through some therapy as a result of that upbringing. And apparently one of the things her therapist has asked her to do is to only talk in the present tense. Uh, yep. Never not to talk about what, what happened in the past in her and her mother, not to think about the future, but just to say, today I'm feeling this way. Today we are this way. Today I am avoiding conflict. And Robin, sort of her take on that is, well, that's baloney. Things yep. have happened to us in the past. We are the result, the accumulated sum of what has happened to us in the past. And we are all the other part of us is sort of this accumulated sum of our dreams for the future. That's all part of who we are. So to only talk in the present seems kind of baloney to Robin. Yeah, and then Sharon says, well, my, my son does the same thing. We don't know necessarily if it's the result of therapy. Um, but, you know, Sharon says, well, I, you know, I'll try to talk to my son about that great time when I visited New York. And he'll say, today it's cloudy. Yeah. That same sort of feeling of living in the present tense. And what's interesting about that is that for me, I think, is that that sense of what tense you live in occupies some of the direction for these women in the play. Robin is very faithfully trying to escape her past tense life, the same as Sharon. And they're both sort of looking towards this future tense life that is going to be, that they hope will be different than the one they're living now. But 
the the result of that is that they're just sort of forced to live in the present with each other. That neither one allows the other to get too far ahead, to think too far about where this might go, what might happen. Neither one allows the other one to reminisce too much because their past life experiences are so so divergent, so different, that there's not a lot to talk about if they talk about their past. So what do they end up doing? They end up talking about what's happening right now. What vegetables are these? What right. did you bring in? What should we do now? How did your date tonight go? Yep. Un- until it like breaks down a little bit for for like there's a couple scenes that they're like that you see the that the relationship as as like moving moving forward with some longevity. I think Sharon gets there first and that maybe this is an interesting question. I think Sharon uh maybe reaches that stage where she's like I want to look forward with this relationship and move forward. Do you think that Robin ever gets to that place as well? Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I agree with your initial premise because for Sharon to say I'm looking to the future of what the relationship this relationship would be like would mean that she would have to acknowledge what choosing to take on Robin's life of crime would actually mean for her own life. I don't ever get that sense about Sharon that hmm. she has thought enough through. I'm so uh, we I guess we haven't really covered this plot wise. Yeah, so let's, let's say let's, this. Yeah. Um, so what happens plot-wise over the course of the play is that Sharon wants Robin to teach her how to be a criminal, essentially. Pretty much. She wants her to teach her how to um, how to st- steal money from people via telephone, how to sell marijuana. Uh, she doesn't—I don't know that she ever teaches her how to, like, rob a car, but yeah. one of the things that always happens is she learns to pickpocket. And so that <laughs> sort of drives maybe the middle part of the play is yep. this Robin unwillingly— teaching Sharon how to become a criminal. What well, the sense that I never really get from Sharon is that she's ever really thought this through. She has a <laughs> house, uh, you know, a kid that she visits, uh, a life, friends, to become, to, to throw all that away and, be, and sell pot for a living or, you know, rob money from people on the living would mean becoming Robin. On the run, moving constantly, your kids don't talk to you, you, you know, so... I just don't know that I feel that Sharon has looked that far into the future tense. She seems to only be living moment by moment. What do I want to do now? I want to learn how to sell marijuana. You know, (laughs) should we, should we sit and talk about what that will mean for my life if I become a pot dealer? No, let's not. Let's just do it anyway. So sure. she, um, She, she definitely gets excited about, um, uh, about the sort of turning wheel of what's going on quicker than Robin, but I'm not sure she's really looked that far into the future, uh, into what could really happen. I think, I think you're right, but I don't think that she would say she hadn't, because uh, I think in in a couple of the different scenes, I think I think ultimately, you know, the 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 wise person sitting down and saying, "Have you really thought this through and how this is going to affect your life for the next ten years?" She has not clearly. But she is she moves quite quickly into, well, we should start expanding. We should sell sell to kids like young kids. We should sell these brownies, too. And she goes out and buys a gun and thinks that she's uh, planning ahead for situations where they would need a gun. So she she invests in future events that are not happening. And I think she would say that she is she is wanting this relate looking to the future of this relationship and what it can be for them. I that I actually totally agree with you there. She she definitely maybe thinks that she has thought this through and yeah. is looking forward. 
But whether that looking forward, it seems to me to be more just based on what she wants right now rather than an actual um, look towards the future and what is possible. Her looking to the future seems to be mostly just a um, uh, just sort of a blowing up of what she wants now. Well, what do I want now? I want something to excite me and shake me out of my monotony after all this whole life that I've lived. So I'm going to start learning to sell drugs and steal money from people. Uh, that'll be a life plan for me, I guess. <laughs> but there, but just to, just to say, I've thought this through. I've looked forward. I should buy a gun. We should sell the kids. This is a good plan, right? Doesn't I don't know that it necessarily means she's actually crossed that threshold to look into that future tense. She, uh, and I actually think Robin's the same way. What is Robin's plan moving to Iowa? Yeah. I mean, what's she going to do? She doesn't have like a job history as far as we know. So she's not going to be able to get a job. I mean, maybe she's got just some money stashed away from lucrative business dealings. That's possible, I guess. But she she just seems to do it. She says at the beginning of the play, actually, you know, when uh, I, I, you know, I just have to, she's talking about quitting smoking and she says, I've just got to quit cold turkey. When Robin does something, she just does it outright. She just jumps in. And that, right. I mean, that does sort of seem to ring true. She just like moves to Iowa and no, you know, what's the future of her living in Iowa really going to look like? Right. And, what, and, then, of- and then when, when Sharon starts to inquire and get her to teach her more, Robin seems to still, seems to sort of live in that present moment of, uh, you know, uh, having somebody who's interested in what I do and cares about the things that used to, that I pretend don't matter to me now, uh, that used to matter to me is exciting and makes me feel cared about. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow this and I'm going to give Sharon what she wants in return. But all, all that can mean is that the, her future tense, she becomes more likely she's going to get back on the police radar. It becomes more likely she's not going to be able to stay in Iowa City. Um, she certainly can't run a pot empire selling to elementary school kids out of <laughs> Iowa City. <laughs> but she could try. Oh, goodness. They yeah, do try. They do that try. No, I think you're, I think you're right. I, I like the direction that you're, you're heading with it. I think that it is very indicative now. Now that we've kind of because I was I was going to move there next, and and Robin, it, it's baffling to me too exactly what she thought was going to happen. It's almost like almost like it meant so much to her to be able to talk to her daughter that it didn't matter how crazy the plan was. She just picked up, you know, tore the roots out of New York and ran to Iowa. And basically, the plan was just get away from the people that know me and then figure it out. Yeah, um, you know, Robin seems to be a person who has an unwavering self-confidence. Yes. And so to, for her, it does not surprise me at all that a person like Robin would just say, eh, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Sharon does not seem to be that way. Maybe what she sort of learns over the course of the play is some of that sort of chutzpah of, I can just do something and figure it out as I go along. That is maybe the Robin way of life. The Sharon way of life is to follow sort of a pre-prescribed path, just sort of along, just turning the wheel like it's supposed to be turned because that's the safe sort of route for my life to take. So then why does why does Robin let let um if if Robin is this character who, you know, knows what she's going to do and goes and does it, why does she let Sharon corrupt that goal for her? And also, if 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 the primary goal is, 
reestablishing communication with the daughter. Why do you think, let's dig into why she decides to do this, run in this crime ring with Sharon a little bit. I think that that is perhaps the right question for Robin for the play. She's decided that she wants to run away from it all and change her life. And all it took was one person to say, hey, can you teach me how to steal money? And suddenly she's <laughs> back in the game. So how committed was she when she moved to Iowa? How, how committed was she really to leaving it all behind? Uh, you know, one thing that, that she tries to do over the course of the play is quit smoking. And she just can't seem quite to do it. <laughs> she yeah. tries and she says, oh, she, I don't know that she really tries. Well, her sort of continual mantra is, I will quit. I am quitting. I'm going to quit. This is my last one. It's just, a, you know, I will, I will quit. But she can't ever seem to do it. Then somewhere in the middle of the play, Sharon compares that to her leaving her life of crime behind as if, oh, what, is quitting crime the same as quitting cigarettes? Something you're just going to maybe do now, maybe do a little bit later, not ever really do. And Robin says, that's a totally unfair comparison how dare you and then as an audience <laughs> member you go is it really is that it? unfair of a comparison <laughs> you seem to be dropping right back in i think maybe um a way to approach that question is to wonder what happens at when robin leaves because whether she's leaving to return to her life of crime or to go somewhere else to try to be distant from it with someone who won't draw her back in is probably a crucial question for the actress. That's going to prescribe to you how serious your playing of Robin is about actually leaving the life of crime behind. If she's not that serious about it, then this has just sort of been a rendezvous in something different. I'm going to pretend for a while that I can be uh, the kind of mother worthy of Amanda, uh, all the while knowing I'm really not. And then eventually I'll just go back to being who I think I really am. If you think that she's really honestly serious and that what happens is that like an addict, she's just sort of physically pulled back into something that she's good at, that excites her by somebody who seems excited about it with her. Just the draw back, you know, it's like it's... If that's your playing of Robin, then the the story of this play is sort of like the story of an alcoholic having another drink and watching sort of the heart sink. You know they're serious about giving it up, but there's something in the physical addiction that draws them back in. And then at the end of the play, when Robin leaves, you imagine she's decided this situation is toxic. This situation is going to pull me back into something I do not want to be in. So I have to go and try to be serious about quitting somewhere else. Yep, I I completely agree with where you're going with that. I think I think it is really important to ask the question about where she goes afterwards and I think it is I think we are left to assume that she is trying again somewhere. I think I think her last lines she has this moment in the night before that she leaves when uh <laughs> Sharon goes on her date with this individual and basically says it was super boring and I it's, a, it's like an internet date. Robin it, yeah, they, to they convince they sp- her to doing this blind internet date. Yeah, and she goes on this date with this guy and she says we like we made out in the car, something I never did in high school, and I got so bored and started pickpocketing him while we were kissing and she comes home and uh, is just very drunk and they wind up dancing and Sharon winds up kissing Robin and and from basically basically that is the last uh, moment that we see Robin on stage basically her disentangling herself from that moment she uh, 
says goodnight. I'm not mad at you, but I'm I'm going. And I think I think that's that scene winds up crossing the line into both she realizes this is a toxic situation, but also that she's not doing any good for Sharon either. Like her presence is not helping Sharon build on this new life that she has. It is instead it is opening her up to a world full of uh, things that she perceives as fun that I think, as we've said, she has not thought through the ram- the full ramifications of what they all mean for her as she moves into them. So I think those things together seem to indicate that she is not leaving there in like a, I'm so glad I picked up this this type of life again, but rather in, in almost almost it's kind of a sad almost defeat that this situation didn't work out D- didn't work out i i totally agree that she leaves um she leaves defeated whatever journey she thought she was going to be on during the play i think that her journey ends in failure um which is a, a sad and maybe not everybody would agree with me on that that i think her journey unfortunately is one where she realizes that at least in this situation, she's not going to be able to accomplish her goal of leaving this sort of past behind her. But whether she leaves defeated, um, to ju- defeated and saying, I can't escape it, so why try? Or whether she leaves defeated saying, maybe the next town over in Iowa, I'll be able to pick it back up again, or Nebraska or South Dakota or, or wherever. She, you know, she's from the Bronx, so she's trying to move to mid- the Midwest away from yeah. you know, the evils of the city or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just, I'm, I'm not totally sold on which direction she goes. So I, I, th- I think you're saying you think that she moved on to somewhere else to try to continue to uh, quit. I, th- I mean, I think so. There, there's, there's, that's just my own like feeling of it, though. There's nothing really in the play that necessarily makes that true. What do, you, what are you thinking about it? Do you think that she, where she heading next in your yeah, directorial gosh, opinion? I don't know. I, you know, the sad part of me thinks that there's a pretty real chance that she just went back to New York. Yeah. You know, she just realized even in Iowa, even living with this housewife who has the most boring, normal life in all of existence, (laughs) even then, I'm still selling marijuana. I'm still stealing money from kids. There's nothing for me. You know, it's like like watching, uh, you know, a long time, like I said before, it's like watching a long time AA member fall off the wagon and then just decide to stay off the wagon. It's sad, but it, you know it's it's definitely possible. Uh, you know, the hopeful side of me would agree with you that she said my quitting in this point was uh, a problem because I moved in with somebody who uh, was so desperate for a diff for a life that's different and adventure that I was an adventure to her, and so I was not able to live the sort of boring life I want to live. Um, so maybe I'll try that somewhere else. Yeah. I, I guess so. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but like she's put a lot of time into, assumedly, you put some time into moving to Iowa and uh, she leaves. I, I don't a, know that she did. Well, but she at least enough to, you know, look on a on a classified ads and find this place, talk to the person and move her stuff. Um, yes, that's, as oppo- that's true. As opposed to she leaves in a night, basically. <laughs> Like she packs up everything she has, puts it in the car and leaves. So where do you leave to? Probably a place you're familiar with. So I think that argument for going back to New York is a strong one in that scenario. 
why do you think it is the kid? Like, what about that final scene with Sharon? She comes home drunk. They dance. Uh, they kiss. Uh, really, Sharon kisses Robin. She says goodnight. What about that scene do you think is the the scene to drive her away? Because they've had mm. some maybe more um, maybe more obvious scenes for her to realize that she needs to move on. The one in which Sharon comes home with a gun and says, I bought a gun. We need to protect ourselves. And we should sell marijuana to children now to expand our business. Those scenes maybe seem on face value like the more likely scenes for her to go, I'm out. So yep. why is it the one where there's like some tender relationship between them that drives her away? That maybe will help us get some at the heart of who Robin is. Yeah. I, I, I agree that that moment has to be the pivotal moment. And I I wonder if it, it, it crosses, I think it crosses a deeper line into a realm the 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 core of the realm you're changing i think she sees a lot of change in sharon from the first time she meets her and this is something that is a, just a core change and i don't know if if she think i i think i think she cares a lot about sharon and she cares a lot about the change that she is causing in her life and it's a really short amount of time it's 5 weeks and 5 days basically i think if i did the scene math right that that this all happens in and so like the, a month and a half. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, and and all in the summer, and and she knows that pretty recently her husband left her, and all these things are happening, and so she sees. I think she begins in that moment to see how much of her she has. Uh, sorry, Robin begins to see how much of herself she has put into Sharon. And but what? But what it is? What is it about that scene? That causes her to see that. The kiss drives Robin up into her room. I mean, at, at, at the moment where Sharon kisses her, Robin is gone. Yeah. Snap, she is up and in. So, you know, is there this other part of Robin where actually realizing that she cares for someone is so scary that she must leave? I mean, is there a part of Robin that is averse to the kinds of relationships that she really wants to have with her daughter? Hmm. I mean, she comes from a life of moving around constantly, right? Because she was being because she perpetuated fraud, the police would come after everyone's while. So she would have to leave. She would they, she talks about how her and Amanda had to move around a lot to stay safe, to um you know, keep the money flowing in. She actually talks about how she had some contacts and some relationships in the criminal world in the different sort of places that she lived and how when she moved around, those contacts had to be broken. So is that sort of rhythm of her life of moving on and never staying long enough to establish uh, real firm contacts, firm relationships, does that just sort of cross-apply to Sharon? That she's around for five weeks, enough time to sort of dabble in something interesting, um, and then she's got to pick up and move on before it gets real. I think that you could be hitting on something there uh, because uh, earlier on, too, like Sharon, there's a scene where uh, Robin gets Sharon to uh, smoke marijuana with her, and Sharon winds up 
uh, saying the morning after we're we're friends, and Robin replies, "We're friends? I don't think so. I think we're housemates." And Sharon says, "No, you got me to smoke marijuana. You're we're friends." Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And actually, it's sort of the same thought too um, that I had a couple times is in those early scenes like maybe two to four times they have an exchange like this. Robin will say something like, um, you know, uh, I I used to be married to a guy, even though I'm gay. And Sharon will say, I didn't know that you were married to somebody. And Robin will say, I've only been here a week. How would you know yeah. that? <laughs> so the uh, there's this, there's this, Robin establishes some distance, I agree, right away. She refers to her as a housemate. She tries to keep this distance of personal knowledge. Like, you know, after a week of living with somebody, I would suspect you would know if they had been married or not. Like that's a pretty big life part, but but may, but that's maybe me coming from living in the Midwest, coming from those kinds of uh, communal relationships. Whereas Robin has lived a, to- a life totally different than mine. So there's some difference in their lives, and one of those differences is Robin's life is about distance from the people around her. She like you like you were just talking about. I think that's right on. Yeah, and even. Even the, the at the end, we get the impression that this relationship isn't necessarily over, but she still needs the distance. In the phone call that she she uh, leaves with Sharon, she kind of assumes the role of one of the fraudulent callers in the, one of the scripts that they went through. And she basically says, I might call in every once in a while, and you mean a lot to me, and thank you so much for all everything you did for me while I'm there, but I'm not going to be there anymore. That scene for me is worth the whole play. Yeah. Uh, that The build to that conversation at the end, uh, it's just so beautiful. She they one earlier in the play, Sharon has uh, when she first decides to be a fraudulent caller, she pretends to be from the uh, like International Association for Orphans or something. Um, yeah. and so she calls her Sharon calls her first victim and convinces her to give her money <laughs> to care for orphans. So then at the end Who of the is- play, after Robin has just up and left in the middle of the night, Sharon finally gets a call. And the call in the call, Robin pretends to be somebody from the International Association of Orphans um, as a way to keep distance. She doesn't just call and say, hi, I'm Robin. <laughs> Remember me? Um, <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Sorry I left. This is why I left. She has to put on a facade in order to have a real conversation. Um, yeah. And, and that that is insightful into to who she is because I'm not sure that they have very many um, – real intimate conversations that Robin doesn't try to bail out of in some way. Um, and in this this conversation, instigated by Robin, Robin calls her, and it's a, the most real relationship conversation to have is, I'm leaving, <laughs> I'm gone, I can't come back, this is why. That conversation has to happen behind some made-up facade that Robin creates, and it creates some beautiful moments. Uh, there's a great line where Robin says, um, you're a great, you know, she's, remember, she's pretending to be from the International Association of Orphans, and she says, you've done a great thing by choosing to care for strangers. Yeah. Um, and that that has such great, beautiful, uh, poignant moments. And then she, you know, uh, Sharon says, will I ever see you again? And Robin says, once orphans are placed into their homes, it's very difficult that they will ever return. Yes. So there's some beautiful double lines there that really work as the orphan pretender. Um, 
And it's not like she's tricking Sharon. I mean, she calls so that Sharon knows it's her. And she gives a name that she knows Sharon knows. knows. Victoria Jones is one of, like, the card that uh, uh, Sharon finds. And Amanda, her daughter, Robin's daughter, calls and asks for Victoria. So she she knows that that is who is calling. And it yeah, is not it's, lost. It's not her. a it's not a trick. It's a pretense within which to have the conversation that allows it to be distant. Because in that pretense, Robin doesn't have to answer any questions she doesn't want to. Why? Yeah. Because she's not Robin, so she can't answer questions like Robin, uh, what did you leave because I kissed you? Robin, did you do blah blah blah? Because the International Association for Orphans person doesn't know the answer to those questions. All yep. she can do is provide these sort of uh, clever double double entendre sorts of uh, you know, responses that do provide not really an answer, but they provide some conclusion. Yes. She doesn't really call to say this is why this happened. I'm sorry. She doesn't really call to apologize. She calls to say thank you for taking care of me while I'm there. I, I'm gone. I'm not coming back. Yep. But the reason that she gives, and let's talk about how how true we think this is. The re- Sharon says, why did you leave? Or, or actually she says, why are you choosing to use that name? She, Robin pretending to be the international orphans person says, um, I'm Victoria Jones, like Jackson said. And, and Robin says, why are you using that name? And Robin says, because sometimes I, we, sometimes we recognize that pasts are contentious and that they can come to cause great harm to people that we care about. Hmm. So, you know, her, her given reason for leaving in that conversation is I've realized that my past could cause great harm to someone I care about, i.e. you, Sharon. Yep. How how true do we think she's being there, Jackson? Oh, I think this kind of goes back to the way you and I read that scene uh, because because I and maybe my own insufferable optimism um, <laughs> <laughs> because I think she really does care a lot about her. Um, and and I think I think she's she's I think it's just so clear in the last two scenes before she leaves that Sharon is on a destructive path. Um Starting, starting with the scene where she has a gun and she wants to sell brownies to kids, and then there's 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 some really good, compelling lines within the scene where she's talking about the date she went on, and she starts referring to him as the guy, and all of a sudden the conversation shifts very serious for just like a moment as Robin tells Sharon, "You got to be careful with that because if if they just become the guy, then." What, where will you stop with what you will do to the guy? And she's like, it's not like I'll kill him or anything, but still like these things pop up within Sharon. And I think, I think Robin sees him. So I, I think there's at least a large grain of truth within her saying that. Yeah, I I think I agree with you. I am not the eternal optimist that you are. And I (laughs) tend to think that people, especially people in drama, tend to do things mostly for selfish reasons. And because I see that a lot in drama, because that's a very dramatic thing, you know, what can I do to improve my bent in life? How can I accomplish my goals is, you know, in some ways the core of what drama is. Uh, Because of that, I see that Robin you know, if her if her across the play goal is to leave behind a different past, um, you know, the best version of the end of the play is her saying, I cannot do that living with Sharon. I cannot be Sharon's adventure 
and simultaneously be my own, you know, come to my own peace. Those two things cannot coexist. It cannot be that I am going to be the source of a brand new and exciting life for somebody, and simultaneously I can make my own life more boring and more normal. I I, I think I think you're absolutely you're, you have a very strong argument for it. I think she is absolutely a kind of a wall putter upper, and <laughs> for lack of a better word, and uh, I think. I think very clearly she she realized she was not wanting to commit to this at this rate and threw up and, the wall in, and in, used in the excuse. In my interpretation then, and, and the, the truth is probably some of both, but in my interpretation then what the kiss signifies is, um, you know, throughout the play, a couple times Sharon mentions that she kissed a girl in college. Um, because Robin's gay and Sharon comes from Iowa, she doesn't really know what to do about that. Um, yeah. So uh, Sharon, in her sort of uncomfortability with that, a couple times says, well, I kissed a girl in college. And so for me, the kiss that drives Robin away is sort of the final nail in the coffin where she says, I'm just an adventure to Sharon. Um, I am the girl that she kissed in college. <laughs> Just part of the story, this sort of exciting, uh, this exciting uptick in her otherwise mundane life. That's maybe the most. That's maybe the most sad version of the kiss. the The most, the most heartwarming version of the kiss is Robin realizing that how much Sharon cares for her, and how much Robin cares for Sharon in return, and how how utterly insane pulling Sharon into a life that Robin wants to escape is. Well, we I think we've I think we've covered that sort of core tension of the play. I'm interested, Jackson, in your perception of Iowa throughout the play. Both <laughs> characters are not from Iowa. Uh, this is maybe is something we haven't revealed in this uh, podcast yet, which is that Robin obviously is from the Bronx, but Sharon actually throughout the play is pretty adamant that she's not from Iowa either. She's from Illinois. Right. Uh, which, you know, outside of Chicago, Illinois is a lot like Iowa. Um, but she says it's very different. I'm from Illinois. Um, so do you feel like Iowa takes a beating? Yes, I think so. In 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 the long run, it does. There's this great kind of scene uh, in the middle where she's explaining how she used to call people. And she said in the north, you know, they're all... They're all cold and and non trust untrust untrusting, and then in the south they're kind but ultimately suspicious. In the west it's all a mess, but in the Midwest people are suckers basically. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that, uh, and and sort of the core aghastness of them is Sharon saying, "You moved from the Bronx to Iowa. What yeah. a crazy thing to do!" <laughs> and Sharon saying, "I live in Iowa, but no, yeah. I'm really not from Iowa. I'm from Illinois." I'm in front of Illinois. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then in the first scene too, there's some great kind of regional humor where uh, they're both afraid of each other's regions to begin with. Sharon is very afraid of the Bronx, Bronx, because all sorts of bad things could happen there. She thinks, and uh, but then <laughs> Robin is really afraid of tornadoes. And you know, as as I'm so I'm from Minnesota, northern Minnesota. Middle Minnesota gets a lot of tornadoes. I'm from northern Minnesota. We get no tornadoes up there. And I moved to Iowa for college. And 
it's just like a normal thing for tornadoes to blow through your town just miles away. And like, I absolutely identify. And, and I'm, I'm from Omaha where we get tornadoes all the time. So, yeah. I, you know, Jackson and I went to the same school in Iowa. So we maybe have a particular sensitivity to um, plays that talk about Iowa some. Yes. Um, especially in, in ways that feel like it takes a beating. The other thing I think is that the play, um, let's see if I can quickly encapsulate this. In the theater history class that both Jackson and I took in college, one of the things you talk about is the myth of rural simplicity. Yes. And we, you, you examine that in relationship in our class to the play Death of a Salesman. And Death of a Salesman, you know, Willie Loman wants to get his family out of the city. They want to have a yard. There's this idea that cities are bad and out in the country things are good and safe and wholesome and pure. And I think that this play... Um, really is a pretty good example of that myth. There's this sense of, especially in Robin, I'm not sure Sharon maybe would feel the same way, um, but especially in Robin, that moving away from the city into Iowa, this spacious, open place free of crime where you just leave your doors unlocked and <laughs> you ride your bike to book club and yep. you're going to have a garden. There's a sense of Iowa being sort of this pure, open place where good things happen. And the mm-hmm. city is this criminal place where bad things happen. And I, I, I don't think I'm saying that uh, Jen Silverman necessarily thinks that, whereas, you know, I think Arthur Miller, when he wrote Death of a Salesman, maybe did buy into that myth. Yeah. Jen Silverman, you kind of get the sense, just simply wrote characters that think that. Um, I think you get I think you get the perspective of that from Sharon, who is all alone in this place. Like and it kind of gets around to the other topic that I want to talk about, which is the phone in this play is such a huge character. She is you you get to her and she is very alone. Um, she is calling her son a lot. She is leaving messages. You get the impression that she calls quite frequently. And so he lets some roll to voicemail, um, more often than he does pick up. And you see this structure that she has built around herself as she has bought into a lot of that myth, this myth of, you know, homekeeper family. And now all of that is, or the, the structures around that, that, that construct is created out of are gone. Her husband, uh, quit on their marriage. Um, her son moved away to New York and now she is all alone in this space. And, and this is, you see the, the end game of the myth of rural simplicity, which is, it's that she's just alone and by herself on an acreage, you know, at least miles from everyone, which is what drives her to do these crazy things and not have the foresight to stop is that she is done with the monotony of being here alone, just in this house in a field in Iowa. Yeah. You know, the the other thing that you might name of the sort of myth of this play is the myth of rural isolation, that yes. um, there's a sense of, even though she lives, you know, I, I suppose right outside of Iowa City, which is um, not really a rural area. <laughs> Iowa City is a decent-sized town. Um, she does seem to be all alone. And the only real social interaction that we know she has is she's in a book club, but she makes fun of the other ladies in her book club. Um, so we don't know that she feels particularly close to them necessarily. And, and, and then she actually ends up uh, frauding some of them out as well. The other social interaction <laughs> yeah. is that she works at a like a little store on Thursday afternoons. 
Um, and other than that, you feel that her life is very isolating, which is also sort of an inaccurate picture of rural life. Um, you know, potentially people who actually do live by themselves way out in the country might experience that, but the rural communities as a whole tend to be very communal, maybe yes. even more than you would find in a city. And then, the, you know, the converse of the myth of rural simplicity is the myth that cities are evil. And Sharon is very scared of cities, and Robin yeah. has to has, has had to leave the city behind in order to become a good person. And so they seem to be characters trapped in misconceptions about their world. Um, you know, for Arthur Miller, when he wrote Death of a Salesman, I think, like I've said, uh, he creates a world in which those things maybe are true, where if Willie Loman could get his family away, if Biff and Happy could move away and work with their hands, then they their lives really might be better. In this play, you get the sense that none of that really ends up being true for the characters. Robin, even when she moves away from the city, finds that she is drawn into that life of crime just as well in the rural environment as she is back in the city. Sharon finds that um, what all the evils she thought about the city can live right in your house, and you can actually be a part of them, even in Iowa. Yeah, you see the two worlds kind of the, the, the stereotypes of the two worlds kind of come crashing down around each other. And, and maybe that's another part of the reason why it doesn't work out in the end is that, you know, these worlds, when collided <laughs> within a space, really can wreck the two relationships <laughs> as a result of them. Well, but, but right away, one of the first conversations they have, to piggyback off of what you said, is uh, about whether they're going to lock the door at night. And... Sharon says, you know, I usually don't, but I guess I could start if, if you wanted me to. And Rob says, I would really prefer that you did lock the doors tonight, make me feel safer. And Sharon says, is that a city thing? And Robin says, no, it's a Robin thing. So she is immediately mm. taking what might be a stereotype of these regions. The city is bad. A place where you need to lock your door, deadbolt things, keep yourself safe. And the country where you don't need to lock your doors, everybody's friendly, there's no crime. She takes those things and then instead of making them about the stereotypes of the regions, a character says, this is, this is really about me. And that's maybe some of what Jen Silverman does in trying to examine these myths of these places is say the places aren't as much it. It's really about the individual. You can feel very connected or very isolated no matter where you live. Sharon, if you would wake up and decide to participate in the city you live in, instead <laughs> of just walking by the hot yoga classes, go in and do one. <laughs> Instead mm. of just working one day at the gift store, uh, get some relationships, maintain some friendships. Instead of making fun of your reading group, commit to it. If you could do that, you wouldn't be so isolated. Robin, conversely, just stop being a criminal. It's not about you, the fact that you're from the city. It's, you know, it's about the fact that you make choices. And in, in this play, uh, you are you are peer pressured into making choices, but ultimately it's still about your choice to do things that negatively impact your life. It comes down to the individual decisions about how their lives are going to be lived and not about the regions in which those lives are lived. Yeah, I did. I do want, I know we're kind of running towards the end of time. I do want to talk about the text itself for just a second. Um, as, as we kind of wrap up here, because I, I, I want to ask you a very similar question to what you asked me during American Buffalo, which is what do you think the purposes of the the parentheses and the brackets are? Uh, throughout this play, um, she writes the in in the script there are there are instances of the 
lines that are in in brackets, and they seem to be pretty uh, abrupt brackets. And then there are instances of the lines within the parentheses. She describes it a little bit, but I want to know what what you think about more what they have to say about the characters necessarily. Yeah, so we've talked some about how playwrights use these different um, punctuations to indicate things. Jen Silverman says at the beginning of the play that parentheses in the script are supposed to indicate sort of an aside, like they would in uh, reading literature. Um, Brackets are supposed to indicate unspoken dialogue. And then there's this other feature, and uh, we can talk quickly about the parentheses and the brackets, Jackson, but if you don't mind, I'd really, I'm much more interested in this final feature of her text of uh, cutting lines down. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the parentheses and the brackets. Um, uh, one of the things I wonder, as a as an actor for this play, uh, she uses the bracket feature a lot, which is unspoken dialogue. And for her, oftentimes, she will cut out, like, the last word in a sentence. Like, she'll say, um, uh, do you want eggs? And eggs will be in the bracket, meaning you're supposed to communicate eggs unspoken or implied. Yeah. And, and I wonder, as an actor, how difficult her use in this play would be. That's a pretty common feature in scripts is in general, but I think she uses it a lot, even several times within like the same line. Um, and what they reveal about the character as a reader is that y- you get some idea of what they're supposed to be communicating to each other. So you don't have to do the fishing for clues like other characters do. When you see the play, you won't have that benefit. Uh, because you won't have the bracketed text in front of you. So that's right. a benefit you have as a reader over an audience member. You don't have to fish for the clues as much. I think, I think too, what she is able to do with the bracketing is she is able to produce, for, for the most part, Sharon is the one, and I, I, I don't have like the exact numbers, but Sharon is the one that gets most of the brackets. She has lots of sentences and phrases that get cut off at the end. And um, I think what Jen Silverman does in making the actor do this, and I agree, as an actor, it's, it can be frustrating to be told exactly what to cut out of a line. But I think she manages to achieve the Midwestern politeness out of it um, for this character. And it comes across in the writing because there are there's a couple different scenes where basically, like you mentioned the eggs one, that's in the context of, oh, I forgot she doesn't eat eggs and she switches over to coffee. But there are other ones that are are more like she'll leave out the operative word in the or phrase the, the offensive word the yes the offensive word like she like i i wouldn't say this but i i still want to get my question across is <laughs> basically the midwestern way of dealing with things i that that's very interesting i had not thought about the how many how many times the different characters use it but in just thinking through my head i think you're right it's mostly sharon and so um there's the the sort of Midwestern politeness of not wanting to talk about uncomfortable topics, and that does help to communicate that very well. But trying to kind of connect that back to our previous conversation, yes. The other thing is that it doesn't. It reveals that it's not just a Midwestern thing; it's a personal thing. Sharon lacks self confidence, and I would guess if you went through the play, most of her bracketed lines are in the first fifty percent, which is the half of the play where she la- sort of lacks the confidence to even finish her own sentences yeah um to say anything controversial i would guess though i did not do the analysis before this conversation that over the course of the play the number of bracketed unspoken words goes down significantly as she becomes a more confident excited um she describes it in terms of age she feels younger human being 
Yes, as opposed to Robin, who even in this situation where they are arguably equally uncomfortable in the initial scene, she, she very indicative of her character, has much less of these cut lines. She just says the words she wants to say. They're sparse, and they're... Or, uh, or actually, she just refuses to say. Yeah, or just, say, you know? yeah, just nothing Sharon at all. starts her sentence, and then will say, you know, uh, are you really... Wanting to say, are you really gay? And leaving right. out the word. Uh, Robin just would not even say the sentence at all. So there's a difference even yeah. in sometimes how much language they cut out. You don't get you don't get like whole bracketed sentences for Robin, but you really could. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the bracketed sentences are like, don't talk about that. Yeah. Don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. We're not good enough friends to talk about that. Yeah. Where, where were you heading to with Yeah, the... if you'll permit me to steer the conversation a little bit towards one of the things I really wanted to talk about textually. And again, this is something that you would only get as a reader. So if you're if you're hearing this conversation after having seen the play somewhere, you may not know that this is a feature of the script. Um, she directs that throughout the script, she is going to move um, lines down onto the next line of text, like the next line of the page, whenever she wants to indicate like a change in thinking or uh, a shift in the conversation. Let me just quick uh, open it up here and actually says, so she says, um, the line breaks often signal either an intensification of or a sudden shift away from something. It doesn't indicate a beat or a pause. So when you read the text, some of it reads like, um, uh, like free verse poetry. Absolutely, because a yeah. line or a sentence will be broken up down into multiple lines like a free verse poem would look. And supposedly, she's trying to communicate something there. I'm not sure, having read the script twice now, if I totally know what she's trying to communicate. Or mm. as an actor, what I would, how I would try to communicate that back to the audience. I think, I think there is absolutely a danger within this. That uh, you you wind up doing what she says or what she tells you specifically not to do, but that you break up each thought, like each line is like a separate thought. Um, the way it's written, it, it seems like it's it's written in kind of a converse, conversation type form where as you're speaking, you s- stop and you think of another thing to qualify. And then you say you talk again and you think of another thing to qualify and you resume your topic. Um, but if you do that through the whole play, it is it is throughout the whole play. So I agree. I think it's it is a little bit dangerous, but perhaps what it is shooting for is again creating a cadence for these characters. And there's something between um stopping at every line for a new thought and uh, between that and being very conversational and allowing the actor to play in the space of a character who feels the words out as they go. One thing I'm noticing as I'm looking at it here in the text is that sometimes it seems to come in place of a period, um, uh, as if she's trying to indicate that the thought shifts like it would at the end of a sentence, but you don't want to think of it like one sentence to another. How it looks to the eye, um, I actually think is kind of effective in that, you know, it sort of forces a break, but um, uh, it's almost like it's more of a break than a period, Um, but not supposed to indicate a pause. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's like a faster break than a period, because um, like some of her lines are just like regular lines like you'd read in a script separated by periods um, like uh, uh, um, 
Um, she says, Robin says, it's okay, period. I mean, period. There's parts, period. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to read too much of the script um, out loud. But then there are other lines where Sharon will say something like, I mean, there's space, line break. It's not palatial, line break. But I mean, Iowa it specializes line break without periods. Yeah. And the line break uh, feels faster to me weirdly as i read it over the eye because my i think i feel like my eye is more easily able to traverse the gaps than it is able to traverse a period something about my cultural english training just as a, a, a human living in america and being raised learning to speak english is that periods sort of for cause my brain to stop whereas these line breaks sort of allow me to continue reading very quickly uh while still getting that same shift of shift of intention, shift of thought, shift of uh, 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 subtext that a period would indicate. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's, it also, whether it's a period or a comma, when you come to those, you stop. But in when you're in conversation with someone, you don't necessarily stop when they have these moments of breaks. Like, just just in general, our conversation, like as I pause on something and begin it again, you're still listening to the ongoing of the sentence in a way you need to track the beginning of it. And I think that that it, that's why it's fun to read plays as well as watch them because you get to see the craft. She uses it as interruptions too. Uh, it's not just periods or breaks in, in thought. She allows the character to be interrupted without any punctuation. Most of the time it's like a double dash or something like that, that you see a character should break in the interruptions in here don't have that. It's like it's almost a way to communicate like the sentence isn't over. The the thought is not completed, but the the direction of the sentence has to change somehow. And if you're writing like a novel, you might communicate that with a comma or 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 whatever, a dash. But uh, she decides that a line break is going to communicate the same sort of switch that punctuation might but she wants to say the sentence isn't over, so don't take a breath yet. Right. Keep going. There's more more to it, and both to the actor and the audience, hang in there until the end of this line because it's it's still coming around. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I've never read that particular use of line breaks yeah. in a script before, and I, uh, I think maybe you know the next time I read this play, maybe I'll discover something else about the line breaks. I'd be interested to hear Jen Silverman coach act, like to hear a video of her coaching actors to play that so that I could even kind of further understand what she's aiming towards with the line breaks. Cause I mean, I do some playwriting myself uh, and I, I like to use notes like that parentheses, brackets, um, some stage direction. And now there's this other tool that has been introduced to me of line breaks, which I might be interested to use, but I'd like somebody who's used them to uh, help explain to me, you know, how they're intended. Yeah, it'd be super cool to like. I'm 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 looking forward to doing some more digging on this play afterwards because it's a super new play. It'd be cool to see if there's any interviews with Jen Silverman after the Steppenwolf show that comes up. And this is a play that you're not going to see around a whole lot. Um, I mean, maybe you will after Steppenwolf runs it. Maybe it'll be wildly popular. But I would absolutely recommend getting it and reading it. It comes in a great anthology if you get it as part of the Humana Humana Festival 2015 comes with a bunch of other great plays that I'm also excited to read. So it's a great buy. And you get to, I mean, 
it's always fun to see the way different playwrights choose to use punctuation and kind of tamper with the form to bring across their points. So I highly recommend getting this play. And something we haven't really dug into a whole lot is it's a, it's a wildly funny play. Oh, it is <laughs> just hilarious. <laughs> like, and it's one of those plays that because it's so funny, the uh, like the tender moments become so much more tender. Yes, you know, a play like this absolutely. could be this serious drama, but instead it's just these two women who are so different uh, trying to change so quickly. It's it's very <laughs> funny, and that makes these tender moments come out beautifully. Yeah, you know, yeah. The I, juxtaposition I, of of where they're from to what they become is is very fun. <laughs> I was writing a short description of our podcast recently uh, for something that Jackson and I were filling out, and something I wrote was. Um, Dramatic literature is sort of a hidden treasure of literature. Um, people don't think about reading plays a lot. I've, you know, there's this sort of sense that plays are incomplete until you until you see them in production, which is I I don't know that I would openly disagree with that statement. However, I feel I personally feel like plays are a really um, beautiful reading experience. I've always loved reading plays. I find them to be sort of this secret treasure. People who love literature might love reading plays. There's so much in them to capture when you read them, when you have the benefit of rereading and looking at how playwrights use spacing, punctuation, characters, what they're instructing actors to do. It, they really do read sort of like reading a piece of literature. Um, you can, just like when you read a book, you imagine things in your head. You know, you, can, you imagine characters, situations in your head as you read plays. And I find that to be just a, a wonderful experience. I hope that uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're enjoying reading plays along with us. Yeah, it's certainly been a thing that, you know, it's it's not necessarily in the vernacular, folks. You don't necessarily uh, do this on a regular basis, but we do. And we hope that you're enjoying it too, because it, it also is a trained muscle. You begin to like see these pictures painted in your head of these situations. You imagine it on stage. You imagine it as if you were there or you imagine it as the characters, the same you would as a book. So I highly recommend uh, reading along with some of these scripts as we go through it and just getting in the practice of reading scripts in general. As, as you read this play and if there's more thoughts that you want to uh, uh, talk with someone about, because, you know, it can be a little lonely to read a play all by yourself. If you're looking for someone to, to trade some ideas with, please hit us up on Facebook, uh, start the conversation or comment below on this post uh, that, that led you to here. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, am I forgetting it? G uh, uh, we have an uh, a email. Gosh, <laughs> an email, <laughs> the oldest form of communication. Not really, just the digital one. No, um, pretty, pretty recent. Pretty recent. Um, yeah, it's just no script podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send us emails with your thoughts. The other thing that you could do to uh, kind of help participate in the conversation is if, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and share it for us. Bring other people into the conversation and then leave a review. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts and you can leave a review there. That would be uh, a great way to participate. Share your thoughts about the play, your thoughts about our conversation, what plays you think we should read next. Yep, we are on iTunes, we are on Podbean, and we are also on Spotify. So we're on the... Uh, the Apple app, we are on the Podbean, has its app on all its all on its own, or you can listen online on a web browser, and of course we are on Spotify as well. So please... And you can actually subscribe on Podbean, and so mm -hmm. you'll get uh, more information about when stuff is coming out. Um, it'll notify you when new episodes are posted. Right now we are posting every Monday at noon 
uh, is it noon your time, Jackson, or central time? I think it's noon Eastern, so 11 central. Noon Eastern, 11 central. So that's when we're currently posting our uh, conversations. So we'd love for you to listen in sometime over the next week. We're also going to uh, be good about posting what scripts are coming up to be posted so you can read ahead if you want. But I hope that as a listener, um, you know that we try to do a lot of work throughout the conversation to describe plots and scenes so that you don't necessarily have to have read the play to enjoy the conversation. If you like talking about literature, um, I think these conversations uh, will be good for you. Yes, indeed. So we will be coming at you with another play next week. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script. And we will see you next week.